Good morning. As Jeff has said, my name is Alec, and I'll be reading uh, from Mark, and we resume our series in Mark, and we're turning this morning to chapter 3, and starting at verse 7. Um, this can be found on page 1004 of the, the Blue uh, Bibles, or it will be on the screen behind us. So, Mark, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanartes, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. 
In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Luke. I'm really glad to be here today after having a few weeks off with the family. Back, uh, great to be back and to start our year in the Gospel of Mark. We were here last year and we're going back now and all the bits we missed, we're going to carry on and, and look at them uh, up until Easter. So we're going to jump around Mark quite a bit uh, from now until uh, Easter. So it should be great to get back into uh, seeing the life of Jesus uh, And the big idea of Mark is this big news that is presented in chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus came to announce the good news of the kingdom of God to all, and each week we'll kick around and explore that a little bit more. Do you know, uh, for your whole life, though, uh, thinking about today's passage in Mark 3, uh, people come and go. Uh, Friends, bosses, workmates, employees, people enter our life for a season, they leave, Lots of reasons, moving homes, getting new jobs, family needs, health, even death. And even in the church right now, those around us in this room, we may not be here sitting next to each other in the future. You might be looking for a church, you're here today wondering what Trinity is all about and looking for another church means, among other things, uh, new relationships, a change and a change changes to the ones you've had previously. But for all the people changes that you and me go through, Christianity, it comes along. And it says, there is a God who loved us and has made us. And he's saved us. We get to be part of his story. A story that says every day Jesus is with us and I can live with him. Every day you can journey with Jesus and know that for all the relational changes and challenges, there is one relationship that will be with you forever and that's relationship with Jesus. And as we live for him daily, uh, following him and being with him through his word, we begin to adopt his outlook, his purpose, his vision for life. And in this part of Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 3, we have insight into what living with Jesus looks like. And you might be here today and you may think, I don't know anything about Jesus uh, or living with him. Well, the good news is that pretty much everyone in this chapter today doesn't have a clue either. So you're in good company. And that's why we're going to start here in Mark chapter 3, to learn what following Jesus looks like. 
how we do that on his terms, not our terms. And the really big idea that I want you to see from today and something that I want for me and for my family and in fact everyone here as a community is that we would all follow Jesus on his terms, the way he describes it. That we hear the big welcome he has for us and come to him, follow his word and then be on his mission in the world. So I put to you all today, would you join me now and for the rest of the year and the years to come, would you join me in following Jesus? Now you'll notice in our Bible reading there were three uh, locations that we met Jesus at. Three locations and each of those locations paints a picture of what life with Jesus is like. If you have an outline, you'll see where we're going. Um, You can find one online or there's paper copies at the back. But let's explore each of them to see what life with Jesus is and what it means to follow him. The first place we see Jesus is at a lake. That's in Mark 3. This lake is a very public space where Jesus does very visible miracles and shows his power over demons. If you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll find Jesus spends lots of time at lakes in public spaces. You know, God sometimes uses very visible ways to demonstrate his power and authority so that we would see him as the one true God. Think back to the Old Testament, the plagues in Egypt and the effect they had on the surrounding nations, or Elijah and Elisha as two examples. These public moments, public lake moments in the life of Jesus do just that. They cause people to stop and think and look and wonder, who is this man that does such things? And who is this man that commands evil with such authority? As the crowds say in Mark 2 verse 12, we've never seen anything or anyone like this. Except most people only want to be with Jesus at this point to be made well. In chapter 3 verse 10, people are pushed forward to the front of the crowd so that Jesus would touch them to be healed. It was very odd that Jesus touched people like that, people who were sick and unwell. Jewish folks uh, viewed life as a combination of sin that needed to be forgiving and living in a world that made you unclean before God. And both things would exclude you from the temple community until you were cleansed from evil and defilement. And if you touched someone who was unwell or sick or sinful or, or defiled, you too became unclean. And that's why the temple existed actually, not to exclude you but to include you, to invite you back through rituals and sacrifices to the divine presence of God. But as Mark says in chapter 1 verse 15, the kingdom of God is coming near in the person of Jesus and he's welcoming those who would normally be excluded, who are unclean, who are sinful. And it's through his touch he's able to remove the unclean in humanity He takes it into himself, yet remarkably is not defiled in the process. Jesus comes along and offers a spiritual vitality and a health that was never possible until this moment. You know, people can be forgiven all their sin and evil, cleansed from every defilement in Jesus. It's remarkable. He does all of that. But not only were the crowds coming, uh, there's something else hanging around Jesus as well. Over the last two weeks, as we've been driving around as a family, we've listened to the audiobook, The Lord of the Rings. We've never read it as a family, so we've, we've been listening to it. And I apologise that there'll be a few Lord of the Rings references in the next few weeks uh, as that's rattling in my head. If you've never read it, sorry. If you have, well, I've just got on the bandwagon after all these years. But you know, when Frodo puts this ring on in Lord of the Rings, he's able to see the evil spiritual beings that he's fighting against. This ring gives him a sort of spiritual insight, right? 
Now, in the same way, when the evil spirits are confronted with Jesus in the Gospels, they know exactly who he is, and they're terrified. In chapter 3, verse 11, it, it, they, like Frodo, know who he is, and they fall down and confess him as the Son of God. Remarkably, only Jesus has the power and authority to put them back where they belong and to silence them, because only the Son of God can do that which is what happens in 3 verse 12. Jesus says, shush. It's strange, but demons are never to be a source of revelation. Jesus would not have his name, the kingdom of God, being spread by evil, unclean spirits. That's not on. So we have this picture of Jesus emerging by the lake, compassionate, able to wash away sins and impurity of people, just living in the world that stains us with that, reaching out to clean us as humans but utterly powerful, that evil, impure spirits shudder and fall down. Here's the thing. Never, ever for a moment think Jesus is not the mighty, powerful God who rules every being. He will not let us think any less of him. Do you have that picture of Jesus in your mind? Because most of the crowds didn't. Except when Jesus goes to a mountain, we learn that it's only those who are called by God who can follow him because of who he is, not just because of what he does or what they can get. Jesus is not explaining a vending machine type of faith where you put something in to get something back. Come to the mountain for a moment. Mountains appear in the biblical story at key moments when God shows up to speak, summon, gather and call his people. In Exodus 19, the first time God's community ever gathered as one, God gathered them on Mount Sinai. And here on a mountaintop, Jesus calls a new community of the people of God gathering for the first time on a mountain. By choosing 12, as Amanda highlighted in our All Ages talk, Jesus continues now what God started with Abraham's family through the 12 sons of Jacob who became a nation. The remarkable thing is that from now on, becoming a part of God's family means following Jesus. And the criteria? Jesus wants to call them. When it says, follow Jesus, when it says they follow Jesus, it's bigger than saying, who wants to come and get ice cream, come with me. This new people of God is forming based completely on God choosing them, not their birth or history or ability. You know, most of our life is spent uh, measuring up and meeting criteria. Uh, this week at the barber, we got talking and, and he, we were talking about first jobs and he said, when you first start out, you don't get a choice as to the hours you work. You have to prove yourself. That's just how it is. You get told to do this, you cut that hair, you do it for this long. That's what it is. And we live in a society that values qualifications and experience. And now that's really good uh, because I do want my electrician to know how to wire my house well and the doctor to know what medicine to prescribe. Dr. Google doesn't cut it. So that's good. But Jesus isn't looking to invite qualified individuals to life with him. It's actually when Jesus calls that we become qualified on the basis of faith. And here Mark tells us two things about the calling. One, the first thing, is that Jesus calls you to him. The first and highest calling anyone can have is life with God himself. And secondly, we're called to be with him. Look in verse 14. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. That's the essence of being a disciple, following the footsteps of another. 
you get a glimpse of this. If you ever follow the same podcast or people online to watch and learn something, uh, then you're a disciple of them. You're following them, right? Except the big difference is that they don't know you. They're not interested in you as a person, but your ability to make up their numbers. So the similarity of discipleship crumbles with Jesus here at that point. Because Jesus doesn't call you to make up his yearly quota of Christians. For these 12 men, following Jesus meant literally to go everywhere with him. And it meant they imitate him, become like him, carry on his mission, which is what Jesus says next, they're to preach and cast out demons, which in the flow of Mark's gospel is exactly what we've seen Jesus do. He began announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, then he shows the power and the kindness of God by confronting evil that would rail against humanity and God, reminding us that it's a far more spiritual issue than physical. And then these four followers go and do the same. The question is, I mean, what do you think of Jesus? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Up until this point in your life, right now today, would you call yourself a follower of Jesus? Or merely one of the crowd? If you are in the crowd, Jesus will simply be another relationship that will come and go. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, um, uh, Sam, Frodo's friend, started off as the gardener. And he sat under a window listening to Gandalf talk and Frodo's mission and what they had to do. And it was listening to Gandalf and Frodo chat that Sam became welded into the story. And then Gandalf pulls him up and invites him in. In a similar way, are you welded on to the Jesus story? Might I also say that if you think, yes, I am, I'm, I, I am a Christian, I'm a follower of him, may I just say this, that Christians can get very worried and fixated on the idea of calling, like when and where God is calling me to do or be, but actually it's far more simple than what we make it out to be. The New Testament never talks about calling in that sense. It talks about following, and I think that's a far better way to think about it. If you want to use the word call, then there's two things from this passage to see. First of all, it's the call to hear and follow Jesus as the one who forgive and make new. That's salvation. Called to salvation. Every Christian. And then the next one is just simply to be with him. That's it. Daily, word, prayer, being with his people. That's life as a Christian. Make that your highest priority and you'll actually find the rest will take care of itself. Follow Jesus. Now, lake, mountain. Just because Jesus has all authority to call, to cast out evil, to heal, it does not mean every relationship in Jesus' life is going to go smoothly. One of, the, one of the beautiful things of the Gospels is we see that Jesus' life had ups and downs. Difficulties are part of his life. And perhaps the two most painful difficulties that we can have in our life are relational ones between our family and our peers. Our family and our peers. And yet we find Jesus walking into two difficult moments with his peers and his family as he comes down the mountain and he goes into a house. Now these two groups of people, his family and peers, they both try to restrain him, but from different angles. And so Mark sandwiches, you notice it starts with the family and then it goes to the Pharisees and then back to the family. It's a sandwich. Mark does this often in his book. He's making the same point twice. So the first point with his family is so many people are coming to Jesus now that he can't have a sandwich. He is so busy and his family hear about this. They hear about it. And in verse 21, they say, you're out of your mind. You're nuts. So they try to take charge of Jesus. Take charge is a very physical word and Mark uses it in other times, 
uh, to describe someone wanting to arrest Jesus with handcuffs or take him away from a place. But his family are not going after him with handcuffs, but with the desire to change his agenda. Now, in verse 31, we skip down, we see them, they do arrive. And they send a message, imagining that, that their influence as family will compel him to come out. So they say, send a message, tell Jesus that we're here. You know, we may, we may not stop for a stranger on the side of the road that we see broken down or anything like that, but most of us would lay down tools the moment our parents say they need help or our daughter calls late at night for a ride somewhere. Now, in this moment, Jesus is not against family. What he does is use this opportunity to show his new community is like a family. Jesus expands on who can be part of God's family. And in verse 34, he looks at those sitting in a circle around him, and he declares, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus invites us to a relationship with him and each other, not as colleagues or as friends, but as family united in him. And while many of us will have friends in the church, we must never think that friendship equals belonging to the family of God. It's Jesus, our big brother, who unites us together. In fact, the concept of Jesus being the center of our unity is in every single metaphor the New Testament uses to describe the church people. Our foundation for life together has been given in Christ. Again, much of our life is about putting our best foot forward, is not. You write your resume and you have to embellish what you can do to get the job, hopefully. You celebrate the milestones of development we see in our children. We celebrate achievements and place value on efforts and time and talents. But again, it's not the way that Christianity operates or works or Jesus says live in that space. Part of following Jesus is learning a new set of values and ambitions that value Jesus, being with him, humbly doing anything in his name to build up the family and see more people join. Now, while his family think he's nuts and insane, his peers, they think he's possessed by the devil. Beelzebul, they call him. And that comes from the Old Testament, uh, referring back to the god of Baal, if you remember him. And it means Lord of the Flies, which means they're calling Jesus satanic and his followers are annoying pests. Now, that's a horrible thing to say to anyone, let alone the Lord of heaven and earth. So Jesus answers their critique by telling a story. It's a short story and it's not a pleasant one. It's not a nice story. He talks about being unsafe, a home invasion, robbery and civil war. In the parable, Jesus is the strong one. It's very simple. He's a strong one. He ties up evil and restrains it, not with ropes but with his life and death. So he can free people and bring them into his house. So remember the demons from the start. Jesus fights a spiritual war that bleeds over into the physical healing, forgiving, empowering. Now the context here is all about following Jesus. That hasn't changed, which is what he brings it back to in verse 28 to 30. He says, truly, if you think that way, you can be forgiven. It's okay. All sins, every slander and misguided opinion about Jesus can be forgiven. And we know that in Acts chapter 6, many of the same religious leaders changed their minds about Jesus later on and they were forgiven. Which means this unforgivable sin, maybe you picked up on that in the reading, the unforgivable sin is looking at Jesus, attributing what the Holy Spirit is doing to Satan. 
There can be no forgiveness if we reject Jesus because we're rejecting the only way to forgiveness God has provided. If you attribute to Jesus the work of Satan, the good news is that no matter our opinion of Jesus, thinking he's nuts, thinking he's possessed, Jesus says in verse 34 and 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. You see, you can be forgiven. And by doing God's will, you're his brother and sister. What does that mean? Through faith and repentance in him, you are invited to follow Jesus. You're invited to live in and live out his story of hope, joy, repentance, faith. Only God can offer a life like that. Which is why Jesus came. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. In, in whose hands? Jesus' hands. It's close to you. Would you repent and believe in the gospel? And in these few verses, as we start the year, we see Mark is painting a picture of following Jesus on his terms. I wonder, how do you view following Jesus today? How different is your picture of life with Jesus from what Mark describes here? And I wonder, how different would this year look if you took Jesus at his word seriously here and made it a priority to just be with him? to be a follower of Jesus who actually follows him. I know I want that for my life and my family and I want that for all of you here and I'm sure and confident that you do as well. So would you join me this year at looking and marvelling at the Jesus we see here and just follow him? Hey, let me pray. Father God, you are wonderfully amazing and powerful. Yet, in the name of Jesus, you call us to follow you and it's so simple. Forgive us for making life more complex than what it needs to be at times, especially when it comes to following you. May we hear your call. May we see the authority and the joy and the forgiveness Jesus has, that you do forgive every slander and that you welcome us. And that from that position, you would equip us to be your followers day by day for the rest of this year and our entire lives. So Jesus, thank you that we're invited into your kingdom by faith alone, in the name of Jesus. Amen.